Welcome to Strictly Business, Variety's weekly podcast featuring conversations with industry leaders about the business of media and entertainment. I'm Andrew Wallenstein, and I'm here to say this will be no ordinary episode. It's our 100th installment of this podcast, which began way back on April 3rd, 2018. To mark this milestone, I and my esteemed podcast partner, Cynthia Littleton, business editor at Variety, have decided to take a look back at some of the most memorable moments on Strictly Business. If you're new to this podcast, we think you'll find it a great way to get to know us. And if you're a returning listener, we hope you'll enjoy this stroll down memory lane. Now here's Cynthia with her first highlight. Hello from Cynthia, and thanks for listening to this special episode of Strictly Business. One of the interviews I chased hard last year was the first sit-down with Dana Walden after Disney completed its acquisition of 21st Century Fox in March 2019. I've known Dana a long time, and I definitely leaned on that to persuade her to do her first major interview in front of a crowd at Variety's annual TV Summit in Los Angeles in June 2019. Dana has long been one of the most powerful executives in television. She had no shortage of opportunities when the surprise sale of Fox came down. I wanted to know why she chose such an extremely high-profile and high-pressure job of leading Disney's TV studios and ABC. You know, when I looked around and thought about companies which are fundamentally the phone company, a cable company, a retail company, um, companies where the tech started the businesses and then the creativity was acquired, culturally, I think those companies are always going to be very different from a company that's been about storytelling for almost 100 years. And all started by a mouse, as it's often right. said. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Let me ask you: in the in the process of you know making that decision, and and once you were you know once once the industry was you know was surprised to learn that the Murdochs were were uh, you know considering open to considering a sale, did during that period did did the changes in the industry did they crystallize in your mind in a different way when you knew that. You know, Fox, which was, you know, I mean, it was such a shock because it was such a robust business. Rupert was a buyer, not a seller. Was that, did you, did you, was that process a a learning process for what you just described, like where you see the company going? I'm sorry, the industry going? Yeah, no question. And, you know, I think Rupert disrupted again. I mean, I think the narrative around is he a buyer or a seller you know, he was a buyer at the time that people weren't acquiring, you know, enormous station groups or buying a studio or launching a competitor to the broadcast networks or acquiring the NFL on a pretty spectacular scale. That was disruptive at that time. Mm-hmm. I think what was disruptive, you know, in 2018 was him making an extraordinary deal to sell his company. And I do, I do feel like our company got the benefit of seeing what the shortcomings are of the various streaming competitors, you know, what we can do that might be better. And again, doing it at a scale that's kind of undeniable. This is going, um, or is now arguably the biggest content company in the business with you know, the second largest streaming platform in the business with an incredibly robust plan to launch Disney Plus, which is, you know, you, I'm sure you were at Investor Day Mm -hmm. and you just saw this 
incredible collection of beloved brands and content and original programming, again, situated really to win and having the ability to look at, you know, some of the missteps of our competitors. All of those things came together relatively quickly, but they all made great sense. If I had to pick one executive I find the most fascinating to talk to, it's got to be former HBO CEO Richard Plepler. He's responsible for some of the greatest series in TV history. But that's not why I regard him as the consummate showman. This guy puts on a show every time he opens his mouth. When I sat down with him in mid-2018, the streaming wars had barely begun. So it was a treat back then to hear him survey a competitive field just beginning to take shape. And it's even more interesting to look back on that conversation because now he's fighting for a different side in the streaming wars, having launched a new production company with a first-look deal at one of HBO's rivals, Apple TV+. I understand your bullishness, but let's take a step back and say the reality is the undeniable undeniable reality is, is the competitive landscape you're facing right now is like nothing you've ever seen. Netflix alone spending at probably, you know, possibly double what you guys are doing on just original content, not talking about licensing. Amazon right behind them. Apple coming. Your incumbent competitors like Showtime and Stars aren't fading fast anytime soon. So how are you going to be able to compete, especially when you're being outspent by a lot of these new players? Not a lot. You know, our brand... um is a magnet for talented people in the creative community. I feel like Ted Sarando says the same thing. Well, he, 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 he does, and he's welcome to say it, and there's some truth to it, and they do very good work, and I've said publicly, and I'm, I, I, I've said it to them directly, anybody who doesn't tip their hat to what those guys have accomplished uh, in the last uh, seven, ten years just isn't being fair. They've done a terrific job. This is not binary doesn't mean there isn't going to be a good show on Netflix or a good show on Amazon. None of that has interfered with our growth. And I think the proof is in the pudding. Um, Again, despite the intensity of this competition, we grew more last year than in any year in our history. And we're growing and on track for terrific double-digit sub-revenue growth this year as well. So wouldn't you say... Play our game well and curate quality, and we will continue to grow. It's not a zero-sum game. I was exactly... That was the exact phrase I was going to use. Don't you think, even if you manage to do well while competitor B does very well, that competitor F, G, and H may actually fall out? Aren't we in this consolidating world coming to a place where... Well, the the lower brands are not going to make it. Listen, I do think that... um, if you just look at your own lives and you look at, you know, you have only a certain amount of leisure time, a certain amount of time you can watch movies, watch television, be on the computer, you make, you make, uh, you make judgments, you make picks. And um, the key for us is to keep the halo on our brand so that when people do have discretionary time, they are comfortable that we are fulfilling our promise to deliver excellence, and they come. They might not love everything, but they certainly think that for $15 a month, 3,000 hours of library, the wide range of programming which we make for Hollywood movie studios, people end up saying, you know what? That's a pretty good price value proposition. 
David Zaslov is one of the most accessible media CEOs and one of the most articulate about where he thinks the content business is heading. David is competitive but also thoughtful about the industry and how he sizes up the competitive landscape. He's learned a lot over the years from John Malone, the legendary media investor who has a big personal stake in Discovery. When Zaslov used the M-word early on in this interview at his New York office in November 2018, my ears perked up. We were having quite a run as a traditional media company when I say we were mo- mo- uh, cable and free to air uh, around the world. Um, I've been here for 12 years and for the first seven years we had a you know an extraordinary run both in the market and grow- uh, growth around the world and here in the U.S. Um, but I remember a conversation I had with John Malone five years ago. Uh, our channels were growing double digit around the world in terms of viewership. And uh, and our performance was strong. Our company had grown. Uh, stock had grown from about twelve dollars to 80, 80, 80 or eighty five dollars. So we really felt like we were in stride. And John and I talked about the future. And uh, he turned to me and he said, "Okay, we've grown all of our share. Um, how well would we do if people could watch anything?" And I thought for a moment and I said, uh, we've made a lot of progress in the last seven years. We went from 5% of viewership in the U.S. to 13. And I said, I think we'd probably be back to five because a lot of our content, it's great quality content, but it's second choice, a lot of it. And our brands aren't strong enough. And so it was that day, five years ago, that we began the fight to change ourselves from a traditional media company to a global IP company. And we started to change the kind of content that we bought, produced, and we changed the way we looked at our brands. And uh, that journey got us into sports in Europe, where we bought Eurosport, two to three sports channels. It, It was one of the reasons we bought the Olympics. In each case, the question was not how would this do at eight o'clock at night, but is this content that people would watch if they could watch anything. And in the last year or two, it's gotten really a a, a more, uh, a tougher question, which is, will people pay for this content before they'll pay for dinner? That's why we bought the rights to the PGA Tour everywhere in the world outside the U.S. Uh, That's why we bought most of the cycling in Europe and and, and all the majors in tennis. And that's why we're doubling down and, and continuing to invest aggressively with Oprah. And candidly, that's why we bought scripts. And this has been a great growth year, but we were a misunderstood company. Because when we bought scripts, people thought we bought scripts to get more linear channels and to get synergy. We saw scripts as an IP company that hadn't been really, uh, that hadn't been taken advantage of globally. So we saw it as food, home, cooking, travel, and, and, uh, and do it yourself. They owned all that content and hadn't been used globally, but, but not just as a linear play, but in, in the new world, when you look at food or you look at home, aren't people going to want to consume content around those genres? everywhere in the world on all devices. And so um, it's been five years and we got a long way to go and a lot to learn. But we, we are in we, we made a real, I think, uh, 
we've had some some real acceleration in in changing the way our company is seen and saying and the way our content is consumed here in the U.S. and around the world, and that's why I think our stock has has uh, has really improved. We get a lot of executives and creatives on this podcast, but every once in a while, we also make time for talent. Tyra Banks, Steve Harvey, and Gabrielle Union are just a few names you'll recognize. But true to the Strictly Business brand, we didn't talk to these people so they could promote their latest projects or tell us who they're dating. Let's be honest, there's way too many media outlets covering that. What we hear less about is the business side of celebrity. And what we learn in the occasional conversation with performers on this podcast is that many of them are every bit the entrepreneur that they are artist. And at a time when the paychecks aren't what they used to be for Hollywood talent, many of them have carved out lucrative side hustles inside and outside of entertainment. It was something that began dawning on me in the very first episode of Strictly Business when I sat down with one of Hollywood's most bankable actors, Kevin Hart who spoke pretty bluntly about his aspirations to not just act, but build out an empire. So it sounds like you're kind of in the middle of this journey in terms of the empire that you're building. Mm-hmm. I mean, where does it go next? Are there, or what mountains are you looking to conquer? Areas of content you haven't even gone to yet, maybe? Well, I mean, look, I'm, I'm, the goal of being a mogul is a real one. You know, I, I want to be a mogul. I, I want to be a billionaire. I want to get to a point where you look back and you go, damn, this is a, a little dirty kid from Philadelphia that had no idea, uh, you know, where his life was going to go. And once I got an inklet of what I could do, I made a decision to give it 100 percent. I got 40 people on staff right now. You know, when I look up and I, I'm responsible for people's lives and livelihoods. And that's a, that's a big thing to me. The fact that I know that I'm in position to do that and that these people believe in this vision. These people are giving me 100 percent because they say we're going to follow you, Kev, until the wheels fall off because the passion behind your drive and dream is real. To me, that's the biggest thing in the world. So, you know, when I when I have these meetings with my team, with my staff, I'm not just selling you on today's work. I'm selling you on the future of what we can be. Heartbeat Productions will be a big partner. Heartbeat Productions will do big studio work. Heartbeat Productions will be tomorrow's future company when it comes to development and and producing for for any type of film, from comedy to, to you know, your dramas. I want to do it all. I can't sit back and watch other people be successful and give me a blueprint and not do it. I just can't. I, I have too many relationships where they let me know how they got there, from Oprah to Tyler to Jay-Z to Ellen. I have too many people in front of me that are doing too many amazing things that say this is how I did it for me not to do it. The media and entertainment marketplace has transformed into the land of the giants over the past 20 years. But every business has to start small at some point. I'm always interested to hear from entrepreneurs and independent operators about how they're able to compete against giant conglomerates in a world where, as we know, size matters. Roma Khanna, CEO of Sean Combs's Revolt Media Company, was blunt about the uphill climb of running an independent single cable channel. 
Revolt TV was born as part of a wave of upstart cable channels in 2013 when Comcast had to give carriage deals to independent and minority-owned channels on its cable systems as a condition of allowing Comcast to buy NBC Universal. That sounds like a good way to nurture new and diverse owners in the TV marketplace. But in reality, it's not that simple, as Kana explained in August 2019. It all started with the right thinking and you know we're grateful for that we wouldn't exist but for that so so absolutely is the answer but you know i think the challenge is is that the idea of trying to embrace diversity and creating uh, an equal opportunity playing field for voices to proliferate really runs into a problem when it's the first step of a hundred step race that is unlocked, but the next 99 steps still need support. So we don't have full distribution on, on most systems, Comcast, Comcast included. Um, and we'd love to have that, but that, you know, these companies are struggling with their own, um, you know, metrics as they measure their basic packages and their extended basic packages. And, uh, for us to then compete on an, on an equal playing field with companies that have got better distribution, have been around longer, have, have, um, better leverage in terms of the portfolios that they're a part of, you know, that becomes a tough story. It's that, you know, if, if we want to support diversity of voices in any way and in any platform, it can't always just be step one and then to be measured by the same measuring sticks of companies that have been around for longer in better times and have made it past step one into step 73. Um, yet we will get the, well, you know, your traffic compared to, you know, MTV's traffic. <laughs> right. It's not, it's not a fair comparison at this moment in time. And if you measure us by that stick, we will always fail for the next number of years. So if we really want diversity, what are the measuring tools we're using to allow these voices to grow and then truly compete? Um, in a very difficult world of competition. I mean, it's it's tough out there, and we understand that. We just, uh, we want a shot at it. Before we continue with this retrospective, I want to tell you about an upcoming variety event. Would you and your team like to be the first to learn emerging trends shaping the entertainment industry's largest marketing campaigns? On March 26th, Variety's Entertainment Marketing Summit is bringing together top CMOs and digital leaders from brands like Disney, HBO, Instagram, and more, to discuss how their revolutionary ideas have changed the landscape of Hollywood. With panels that explore the future of omnichannel marketing and modern formulas to connect with audiences, you will have a -a one-of-a-kind opportunity to listen in on thought-provoking discussions that are immediately affecting your industry. Visit Variety.com slash Marketing Summit to register you and your team today and see you on March 26th. Now let's get back to the podcast. Strictly Business tries to stay on top of the latest developments in the industry. But sometimes the industry can move faster than we do. That's what happened in June of 2018, when just 24 hours before I was going to release an episode featuring an interview with Condé Nast Entertainment CEO Dawn Ostroff, she announced she had left Condé Nast for a big new job at Spotify. We published the interview anyway, of course, and in truth, The challenges she spoke of adapting to digital media after a long career in TV proved just as relevant to her now that she's in yet another very different world, creating audio programming. 
your career, you spend most of the time shepherding these traditional long-form things, and now you're saying you're programming to a platform where the old rules just don't apply. So how are you learning the new rules? It has been an MBA for me. I mean, it is, and it's so humbling because, honestly, I, I came into this opportunity thinking I, I can do this because – if you have success on traditional and you, you know, Gossip Girl at one point was the biggest show in the country, right? Every young person talked about it, you know, read everything that they could get their hands on about, about our cast. Um, but it really was eye-opening to understand that the way in which we make the content for the digital space has nothing to do with the way we would create television ideas. Um, you know, it's it. There's there's a understanding of what the viewer expectation is when they are watching content on any one of those platforms, and you have to really adhere to be it either a format that is the expectation or a storytelling style or a way in which you shoot something that really does help determine if something's going to be a success or not. And quality is quality, so it has to be good and has to be worthy of people's time. But it really is very, very um, specific about how the storyteller and how the, the director really does bring that story to life on those platforms. Christina Wayne is a well-regarded TV producer who made her name in the creative community when she was the top development executive at AMC. When you greenlight the pilots for Mad Men and Breaking Bad, you get a reputation as having an eye for quality. I was pleasantly surprised in this interview from October 2018 when Christina opened up about how hard it is to sell shows despite the enormous increase in the overall demand for content. It takes an industry insider to get beyond the surface hype around peak TV. In our conversation, Christina touched on the real problems of working in a frenzied market with unsustainable levels of money and capital chasing talent and producers. So all of a sudden, a bunch of new buyers came to the market, and we would take stuff out. And over the first two years of having my company, we sold pretty much everything we took to the market. There were about, I'd say, 13, 14 shows that we took out, and they all went into development. Not all of them got made, but um, one or two of them got made. Uh, which is kind of the ratio you have. One out of ten usually is your ratio of what you're hoping for. The last two years of being a producer now with all the platforms, there is such a huge demand for content that one would assume that being a producer would make my life much easier. It's actually made it more difficult. What has happened is that TV is such an incredible medium now. It is so high level, the programming that's being made. You have every A-list showrunner, actor, director coming with their passion project. So I often find myself waiting to take out a show to the buyers and you have Guillermo del Toro sitting in the waiting room. You have George <laughs> Clooney. You have every single top level person who's, you know, Guillermo had just won an Academy Award and you're sitting there going, oh yeah, my little great show. Um, what do we have? So it definitely has become more difficult, and I have noticed that unless you package your show to the nth degree, it does not sell. You're talking about soup to nuts with writer, showrunner, star, director, you know, line producer. The whole you don't necessarily need a line producer because they can always hire that because that's not going to be. You need somebody competent, but they're not going to look at that as the sort of bells and whistles of must make TV. Right. And so right now the game is straight to series orders with A-list talent. 
And, you know, you see that with Reese Witherspoon's company. You see that with all of these packages now that are going out. Um, And so I have now moved from being focused solely on development to also being a packager, which really was never – that was always an agent's job. And so it has really sort of taken over what I do. And um, I do it, and thankfully I've been in the business long enough that it's not impossible, but it certainly is not what I came to the business to do. So it's quite different than when I started. The fun thing about looking back at the past 100 episodes is that sometimes there are exchanges you have with an interview subject that seem unremarkable in the moment, but turn out to be pretty damn significant in retrospect. I didn't think much at the time about the answers given to the very last questions I asked Erica Nardini, CEO of one of the hottest sensations in media right now, Barstool Sports, when I interviewed her last October. Considering Barstool recently sold a minority stake of its company to a gambling operation, she was giving me pretty blatant clues about where her company's future lay. And at the time, those clues went right over my head. Is it possible that to get that big, you need to be acquired by the Disney's or Viacom's of the world? Is that the end game? I don't know what, you know, Dave and I always laugh about this, which is people say, you know, What's your five-year plan? What's the seven-year plan? And we always say we don't know. Um, and that's not to say we're not strategic nor to say that we're not thoughtful about where we want to go or what we want to do. But what I think we are at our core is really passionate and opportunistic. So, you know, yes, would we like guns, money, and steel from a big media company to be in and around our business? Definitely. The things we could do to drive linear, the things we can do to grow personalities, the things we can do to create brands, I think is unparalleled. Um, That said, you know, we're a profitable company now. We're growing incredibly quickly. We are at the top of our game in the fields that we are in. I also see a path where we grow independently pretty successfully. So, you know, I think it's a long way of saying we don't know what the future holds. We're incredibly open to what that future looks like. Well, that's the last question. Where else are you guys going to go that we need to pay attention to going into 2020? You need to pay attention to sports betting. So I think that we will be a force in sports betting in the type of content we create, in the way we create it, in the level of passion and originality in in what we do. So sports betting is a place you should definitely look out for us. Globalization is a big buzzword in entertainment these days. Every CEO will tell you that future growth is largely coming from outside the U.S., But what does that mean on a granular level for content-focused executives in the U.S. entertainment industry? I'd heard about an initiative at Endemol Shine North America to incorporate Spanish-language program development for Mexico and other non-U.S. markets into the same core team in Hollywood that handles the company's English-language offerings. I made a point of getting Endemol Shine North America CEO Chris Abrego down for the podcast so we could talk about his approach in detail. One thing we really did was to work much like we did with even our subsidiaries here in the U.S. We really kind of had a flow through um, in terms of how we operated. So with Truly Original or 51 Minds or Authentic, you know, we brought them the formats that we had from us that if we weren't going to work on them, it didn't make sense for North America. We would then funnel them to these guys, especially if it made sense in their specific relationships with buyers. 
we thought if that strategy is working so well and truly regional is having so much success and 51 Mines is having so much success, why wouldn't we apply that? Just because it's another country doesn't mean we have to treat it different. And it, and it seems simple enough, but everyone you talk to, they want to treat it. The minute you say Mexico, they think different department, different mm-hmm. group, different mm-hmm. part of the company. Mm-hmm. And it was hard to fight that, and even internally. But we we worked hard to integrate it and make it just part of our business so much that when we closed the deal with Boomdog, uh, two things happened. We took the entire senior staff here to Mexico City for a week <laughs> uh-huh. and, and integrated the companies. And so they met their, their kind of their parents and their other people who shared similar responsibilities and we shared best practices. And then two, the, here at Animal Shine uh, in, North, in North Hollywood, they start taking Spanish classes. <laughs> so... Everyone, so you can check. Now there's a lot of Spanish speakers in this uh, company now. You know, think about our in, in our business affairs. So we've brought in, you know, people who obviously are bilingual in, in, for both contracts and working with legal people in Mexico. We don't, we obviously recognize that it's two different countries and there's certain laws and, and, and certain practices right. that we have to adhere to, uh, in which we want to be aware of. But when you get below that, in terms of creative process, in terms of pitching uh, characters, casting, finding the best producer, the you know, because for us, the one thing that I think that we do really well at Emotion Shine is we stay focused on, we know that the most important thing is who's making the show. Mm-hmm. It's one thing to who's selling it. It's one thing to who created it. But it really, we focus on who's making it. Undoubtedly, that comes from your background as a Correct. producer in the trenches Correct. with, you know, uh, sleeves rolled up, Absolutely. making the show. Yeah, it, it really, it's like who's going to be on set and delivering the story and these characters and driving this narrative or this competition, whatever the, the show might be about. And that's what we're focused on, and that's actually becoming our biggest challenge in these in these other territories, including Brazil, is is uh, finding a more of those people who can do that premium content. It's been a real honor to have some of the biggest names in the business on our podcast, but honestly, that's not what interests me most when I'm picking people to interview. Don't get me wrong; CEOs are nice to talk to. But we've also had CTOs to talk about technology, CFOs to talk finance. We've had several interviews with heads of marketing at companies like Marvel, Viacom, and HBO. Maybe these role players aren't the most glamorous types you read about in the headlines. But Strictly Business is just as much about the role players because it's through them we can drill down into all the many different pieces that make up the media machine. I'm also proud of the way Strictly Business often looks past the usual suspects in TV, film, and tech to find interview subjects from industries you may not be exposed to as much, like radio, publishing, video games. I can honestly say doing this podcast has broadened my horizons, and I hope it's done the same for our listeners. For example, the last interview I want to highlight in this episode may have been the most obscure one I did in the entire run of Strictly Business. STX Entertainment's virtual reality division, which was actually shut down not long after the interview aired. Listen to this, and you won't be surprised why. The VR division might be in the basement or something. It, it's sort of like if it's even there. <laughs> it's you know it's an experimental part of the company where it's it's really about the marketing assets that they could create versus the original content opportunity and also how can we actually build a business around this new medium and utilize all the best you know facets of of what we have to offer as a studio and so for us that was a really strong proposition well on the other hand i can understand why other studios may treat this as a more let's call it marginal pursuit 
as I see it, and we could talk about it if you disagree, the market for VR entertainment is not quite there, even by the most, I'd say, charitable assessment. So any company like STX that puts serious investment in this, there's risk that there's just not a market there for that content. Is that assessment off base? I think it's a, it's a fair assessment, but you know the level of investment that we're making is actually very responsible. I think what, what we're not doing is going out on day one and just spending a ton of money and hoping we're going to get our money back. We spent a lot of time early on um, developing thoughtful strategies and a business plan around this. We knew that we, in, in, in pursuing original content, original VR movies, it wasn't going to be free content. We knew we had to monetize the content, right? And so we had to really look at how, how big is this market? How big is this market going to be in 12 months, 24 months? Thanks for joining us to revisit some of the great interviews we've enjoyed doing on the Strictly Business Podcast for the past two years. After all this time, I must admit, I feel like I'm just getting started. But as for this episode, we're coming to a close. I want to thank Cynthia for being a great podcast partner. And thanks to you, our loyal listeners. We love to hear from you and hope you'll be sticking around for the next 100 episodes.